Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today I am very pleased to welcome to the show singer-songwriter and comedian Stephen Lynch. Now, I've been a fan of his for a very long time. If you're not familiar, he writes brilliant songs with gorgeous vocal melodies and a very twisted sense of humor. So this is one of my favorite conversations about songwriting and the creative process. Stay tuned. This is Stephen Lynch. All right. Well, I guess I'll start out by saying I've been a fan of your music for about 15 years or so. Oh, thanks. Appreciate yeah. it. And I have actually played these records to the extent that I laugh at the setups because I know what's coming. Um, <laughs> oh, shit, that's a new level. Yeah, you man. You laugh at the setups. I've just played these to death, especially out on the road, you know, those long drives. It helps keep you awake at night. Um, right, right. I'll give you an example. When um, I picked up Three Balloons and uh-huh. I heard Dear Diary 1 and then... When Dear Diary 2, 3, and 4 were going, in my head, I'm like, okay, who's he going to, you know, and, and I figured right. him out before the, <laughs> before the joke. So I've maybe listened to you too much. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I think it's taken a toll on you, to be honest. <laughs> and if I was, I guess, to describe your writing style here is you're sort of a, a twist master here or sometimes even a reverse twist like uh, Dr. Steven or something where everything yeah. seems filthy and then isn't. When I think of that style, though, I think of like the early Adam Sandler CDs that I listened to as a kid, like songs like A Medium Pace or something. I'm curious, what was your inspiration growing up? Like, did you listen to albums like that? Not really. You know, this is going to sound really strange because my music doesn't really sound like it comes out of this tradition but I was a big musical theater guy growing up yeah, and did tons of musical theater. And, you know, there's a lot of comedies in musical theater and a lot of funny songs. And that's really sort of where I got inspired. I just decided to make music that doesn't sound like musical theater, but sort of have the same feel to it in that, you know, it tells a little story. Yeah. And there's sort of a beginning and a middle and an end. And in my case, at least in the beginning, as you said, there's a lot of like take you in one direction and then slew to a different direction and try to get a whole other set of laughs out of that. So, I mean, of course, I thought that stuff was funny, but I didn't listen to it obsessively or anything. Yeah. As a matter of fact, when I probably I don't remember this, so I'm just making this up in my head. But probably (laughs) when I saw him singing songs on Saturday Night Live, I was like, that motherfucker. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, he's doing it really well and probably going to, you know, make a giant career out of this. And lo and behold, I was in the story that I'm making up in my head right now. I was correct about that. Oh, and also Spinal Tap. I've said this about 100,000 times before, uh-huh. as if it's not obvious. But, like, watching Spinal Tap really was the thing, you know what I mean? Before that, I, I had written tons of songs like yeah. in high school and, and even in college. But But I would say that they were sort of, like, comedy comedic premises set to music rather than real songs. Yeah. And then when I saw Spinal Tap, I said, oh, these guys are good musicians and they're writing real songs. And, uh, you know, there's no jokes in their songs. It's more just like character driven and situational. But the music is so good that you want to listen to it over and over again. And I said, that's the key. That's what you got to do is you got to try to write some, some real songs and then make them funny. And so that's what I've been trying to do. And, and, you know, you're right for like the first, I don't know how long 
I don't want to say it was a formula, but I was very comfortable writing in a certain style where yeah. I would think of a premise and then I would say, okay, now how do I get to that premise? It's got to be a setup that makes you think one thing. And then when I hit you with what the song is about, the twist is sort of what gives you that first sort of laugh, like Dr. Steven wrote about. Yeah. You know, and most of those songs. And then I think right around the Three Balloons era, I started getting really sort of tired of that. It just seems so stale to me and sort of formulaic. And like everybody knows what's coming. I'm going to sing something and then I'm going to take a left turn. And yeah, I, I got to try something different. And I had been listening to a lot of. This is also going to sound strange because, like musical theater, my music doesn't really sound much like this guy. <laughs> but I had been listening to a lot of Iron and Wine, and the dude was doing these songs that were like one chord progression for 10 minutes. That seemed like a really good writing exercise to me, is to, is to write a song where there wasn't a verse and then a chorus, and then a verse and a chorus, and a bridge and then a chorus. And, you know, just give yourself this one sort of weird palette, which is four chords or whatever it is. And then you have to figure out how to make a whole song interesting like that for three or four minutes or whatever it is. Yeah. And out of, out of that was born the sort of, you know, I, I wouldn't say if you were unfamiliar with me that you would think that my lion record was a big departure from what I do, but I think it is. And I think if you, if you really did listen to those records over and over and over again, those early ones, you probably think the same thing. I just felt it was like a different, it was still sort of the same idea, you know. I'm going to try to be funny while singing songs, but the style was going to was going to change a lot for me. And so I sort of got rid of that twist kind of formula. That and and again, I say formula. No, not I get that it. I was intentionally doing it, but that's just sort of how my mind worked, and that's just, it, I had had success doing that, and I knew how to do it, and it sort of came easy to me. But after three balloons, I was like, I got to I got to mix this shit up, man. I got to try something different. So. That's why it took so many years between that record and Lion, is because I, I basically took everything I had and sort of threw it away and started over again. And I, I made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to just throw some stuff in because I knew it would be funny or because I knew I needed more material on the record. I was going to wait until I was happy with everything before I put it out. So. Yeah, and I think it really shows. I mean, I, I do want to get to those records, but primarily the last two or three there is okay. an obvious evolution for sure. But you just in talking about songcraft, I mean, I'm really big on arrangement and stuff like that. And uh -huh. they really are beautifully executed, always catchy, memorable songs that I would. And I think part of the reason that I listen to those early ones so much is that uh -huh. they still have good melodies and they still have um, all the qualities that you would want. You know, I mean, I listen to a lot of singer songwriter right. stuff. So, I mean, it's built in. I wonder, did you ever, I mean, you, you talked about theater. Did you ever do any bands or record any more like straightforward music when you were younger? You know, I had a band in high school with a couple friends of mine. That, <laughs> but essentially, we were just doing sort of a version of what I do now. Yeah. Except louder and, and with electric guitars. <laughs> but, you know, the lyrics were never meant to be anything but funny. Yeah. And really, we just did it to crack ourselves up. But no, I never had the idea that I was going to be a musician full-time or even a songwriter. That was just sort of a fun thing I did on the side. Yeah. I wish I had been, though. You know, all my friends have been in bands, and it just seems like so much fun. But yeah. It just, it just wasn't in the cards for me, I guess. Or it hasn't been so far. Maybe I could still do it. Who knows? 
I imagine that those those earliest songs must have just been a real joy to write, though, and kind of seeing how far you can take it and oh, you know what so, kind of ideas yes. you come up with. Do you still enjoy that process in the same way? I enjoy it. I've always that's always been my favorite part. It's not the performing of the song. It's not the recording of the song. It's when you start with nothing, like yeah. zero, and somehow. I'm sounding so pretentious here, but it's true. You somehow pull out of the ether a thing that becomes a real thing. And it comes from nothing. You just have to, or at least in my case, you just have to hope that, um, I guess you'd call it inspiration will strike. A lot of people say you just, they just sit down and they write and they write and they write. And then of that, they rewrite and they cull and they edit and, you know, it's a real like writing process for them. I don't really do that. I just sort of sit with a melody in my head and reach out and gr- you can't see me. I'm sitting in my hotel room, like, <laughs> like grabbing, grabbing at thin air, but that's what it feels like I'm doing. It's just hoping that even though I'm grabbing at what looks to be something invisible, I catch something and it turns into something. And even when I get something that I like and that I, I think is a good idea, you still have to figure out what it is exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? If I say, Oh, I'm going to sing a song about, how I got to, I'm just trying to think of one of my own songs. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a good sign. <laughs> or, you know, I'm going to write a song about a time machine, all right? That's, that's yeah. like the, what this new tour is about. But what what is the song? Like, what is my take on a time machine? I know it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. I have some thoughts in my head, but what what is it exactly? How does it start and how does it end and what's in the middle and what keeps it funny for as long as I'm singing it and what makes it interesting? What yeah, not cheap jokes or jokes that have already been done eight billion times. So, I totally love the writing process. That's George Carlin is my favorite. I mean, just period. Whether it's music or comedy or anything, he's just a huge influence on on mine. And oh yeah, he said he had this revelation at one point that you know he used to always think of himself as a comedian who wrote his own material because that meant something to him. But in time, he kind of realized, you know what? I'm a writer who performs my own material. Kind of like you said, like this is really the magic is, is kind of developing that idea into something. Yeah, it's true. I'll tell you this with my hand on my heart. If I could just write songs and never record or perform (laughs) and and make a living doing that, that would be the best career. Yeah. And I suppose there are people who do that exact thing. You know, they write songs for other people. Yeah. I sort of have pigeonholed myself into, you know, I can really sort of only write songs for myself, which is fine because I do also enjoy that. And I like touring and I like being up on stage sometimes. Yeah. Um, if you saw me 10 minutes before I went on stage, you wouldn't think that because, you know, I'm, I'm just a ball of stress and anxiety. But <laughs> yeah. Once I'm out there, of course, that melts away. I had a great time. You know, I, I enjoy the process. But if I had my druthers, it would just be sitting in the, my room at home with five or six or ten melodies that I've already written, and I just sort of listen to them over and over again, hoping for that inspiration. And then when it comes, I feel this great joy because I know that I've, as I said before, pulled something out of nothing, and now it's time to get down to work and figure out what it is and try and fail and try and fail until I get it where I like it. If I could just do that, I man, I'd be the happiest man in the world. Yeah, and I know that feeling you're talking about too because – I've said for years, if you meet me before the show, I'm a different person than who I am after the show. You're right. You you get all that out and you're, okay, everything went fine. I'm good. You know, I can, I can actually talk to you now. 
I really don't understand those people who like roll up to the venue 10 minutes before they have to go on stage and they eat a hamburger and then they just go do their thing and then they get off stage. Like, <laughs> I, I, I can never, I'll never be that guy. I never have been. And I never, I never could be. I'm just the whole day. I'm thinking about that night, which I suppose is a good thing because it means I actually give a shit about it. Yeah, but definitely. It, you know, it's not good for the heart and it's not good for, you know, my blood pressure. Well, and speaking of live, here's what I want to ask about like these live albums, for example, because you know, first record was all studio, a little bit special. And yeah. I wonder, because for a while after that, you pretty much stuck live. And now, of course, we get this great mixture. But with Superhero and a, a lot of records from then on, you're, you're doing it on stage. I wonder, was there something lost in translation that first time that you felt like just wasn't there? Or, or what was the decision for capturing a live record instead? I, you know, I wish I remembered why I did that. I don't know. I think I, I just wanted to maybe mix it up because the first one had been a studio record and I really gave all the attention to, even though, it, I mean, seriously, it wasn't even a studio. It was like a basement of a dude's house. Yeah. I had never been in a recording studio before. And to me, I had a vision of how these songs were going to sound. Mm -hmm. So I think for the second one, since I had paid so much attention to the sort of musical aspect of the first one, I said, well, let me pay more attention this time to the performance value and the you know the fact that it is a comedy album yeah and maybe people who listen to a comedy album want to hear people laughing at a comedy album i don't know i really don't remember why i decided to do it that way it also could have been because it was probably about a tenth of the cost <laughs> yeah. to just set up for one or two shows and then pick the best versions and, and you know put out the record and that's it that's that true. very well could have been what i was thinking i honestly don't remember but i do remember thinking even all these years later that you know there's some songs on superhero that would have been really good if i had done them in a studio and really yeah <laughs> you know you know tried to make proper recordings out of some of these songs as they are now they're just sort of part of a comedy show as yeah. opposed to a fully realized song. And that's cool. I don't do most of those songs anymore, anymore anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe a few from each record sometimes, just sort of as a quote-unquote greatest hits part of a live show. But, yeah, sometimes I wonder if I had taken the songs I really like and treated them as real, real songs and recorded them in the studio if I'd like them more. And that's why I figured with Lion, why not... Why not start just doing the best of both worlds? Do yeah. what I want to do, which is go into a studio and make a music record. And then also offer the same material to people in a live setting so they can pretend they're laughing along with it at a show. Yeah, yeah. Now, since we're talking about developing these as legitimate songs, there is one that's kind of a fragment that I wanted to ask about because... Aside from like walking, you don't really have a lot of impressions, but I am a huge fan of the Smashing Pumpkins and okay, your yeah. Billy Corgan was awesome. And I just wonder, were you a fan of the band or did you just think like, oh man, this would be really funny? I think I just thought it was funny. Like, I mean, I like Smashing Pumpkins fine, but yeah, I probably didn't set out to do that. I probably was just fucking around watching you know, MTV or something and heard him sing yeah. and mimicked it and then thought, well, it'd be funny if that guy was singing about something as mundane as like losing his car keys. Or <laughs> yeah. And then that's one of those songs where you do the joke 
And then you realize, okay, I can't take this any, any farther. That yeah, I don't want to milk this. <laughs> as far as that needs to go. Because you know, I'm only going to make it worse if I try to keep going with this. So, And plus, I always liked having those little snippet songs. You know, just little, yeah, little interludes. Little, little tiny interludes, yeah, that you could just sort of throw in between other things. as a Well, I don't, it's not really a palate cleanser. But just keeps the pace up. A comedy sorbet, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Now, I want to talk about a little bit just some of these twists and punchlines that we mentioned. Uh-huh. I think that one of my favorites from that era is like for the ladies. That was a really brutal one. Uh, or <laughs> That was brutal. Oh or my, um, my favorite <laughs> yeah. line from Superhero was from down at the old pub. Where, she, she, I, and I apologize if it's weird me repeating your joke back to you, but the she'll want you to sample the fruit of her loins, but son, it'll taste like some old rusty coins. I mean, uh, there, there are so some that just uh, what, uh, like one of my yeah. good friends was was remarking how he's like, how can you say things so intelligent, but then be so? He's like, you're so amused by the dumbest jokes, and I was like, yeah, but it's. It's the creativity of putting words together that you've never heard before. Like that that's what does it for me. Yeah. And I wonder, do you have any favorites from that era, either songs or lines that, that maybe have endured? Well, I, I tell you the line you just quoted at me has always bugged me because I think it was years after I wrote that and committed it to an album. Yeah, an album before I realized that fruit of someone's loins is a kid. It's it's not not genitals. You're right. You're right. I mean, I think that's what it means. I I was too embarrassed to go check. That's funny. And that's that's why I just sort of left it. But you get what I'm trying to say, I guess. Yeah, I think I laughed so hard at it that I never questioned the the setup. (laughs) I didn't either. I mean, there's been times where I've like listened to it a song of mine or something or sung it and then realized that I rhymed a word with the same word. Yeah. Just drives me insane. That was a beastie boys record where I guess they made fun of Mike D. He made a mistake. He had said, everybody's rapping like it's a commercial acting like life is a big commercial. And they made fun of him. They're like, yo, you just said the same thing twice. Like you got, you got the line wrong. And they're like, but it's funny. Let's keep it. And so they just, that's how the song was forever. Yeah, sometimes you just got to go with the mistake. Yeah, it's funnier, or it's just you know whatever. Who cares? But it does make me cringe a little bit when I hear stuff like that, and I realize that I would not make the same mistake now. But maybe I would. Who knows? Maybe in another ten years, I'll look back at this time period and go, I can't believe I was writing that shit. Yeah. But I don't know. There's stuff I like from sort of every era of my career that I still do. I mean, you know, you play the same thing over and over again. It tends to get stale. Yeah. But there's stuff that I absolutely despise and loathe. And then there's <laughs> stuff that I, that I don't mind throwing in the, the set even in 2021, because I still think it has some sort of value, be it comedic or musically, or there's just something about it that I still like um, that. I mean, a little bit special, really. I think it has some good songs on it. Really. I think, you know, lullaby was maybe the first song I ever really tried to sit down and write a comedy song. And that's just brilliant. I love that song, man. That was one of the first oh, that I heard. You. Yeah, that was an opener for like so many years. That was the one I started with because it tells you 
exactly what I'm going to be all about. You know what I mean? And it's, it's so be disarming a, it's too. on the edge of good taste. Yeah. It's going to be me singing sort of a melodic lullaby-esque song, but it's going to be really horrible words that I'm singing about. <laughs> and it's just a perfect opening song. And I, I dined on that one for a long, 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 long time. Yeah. So I still have a fondness in my heart for a lot of the songs on that record. And then Craig was probably my, uh, oh, Craig Christ is probably my most widely known song, I guess. And uh, we just started adding that one back into the repertoire because at one point a few years ago, I said, I, I can't sing this song anymore. I just can't do it. Yeah. A, I'm tired of it. And B, that motherfucker is hard to sing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm doing like these two hour shows and, and doing it as an encore. And my voice is just shot by then. Yeah. So I took it out and it was great. It was really nice to like not have to sing that song for a few years. And then now we're back on the road and, you know, I just sort of felt it the other night. I was like, no, fuck it. I'm going to throw that one back in there. And I'm glad I did because people still seem to like it. So yeah, there's, there's songs from sort of every album and every iteration of my live show that I, I can leave it alone for a while and then I come back to it. And yeah. It feels good to do that. Well, speaking of some of those early records and the, and the twists and the shock of it all, one thing uh, I wondered about is that you will do something super filthy and then the next song you will kind of say the fucks under your breath and i was wondering like is that a thing just to make it funny like i shouldn't say this or did anyone ever give you shit about like yo tone it down a little bit <laughs> <laughs> wait what would i say under my breath are you a nazi you drive a You would kind of say fuck under your breath sometimes. You would almost whisper it like you were self-censoring sometimes, but it would almost be in the same song or the same, certainly the same set as you're belting them out in other songs. I just wondered about if you even were oh, aware of that. I No, I wasn't. Well, I'll tell you this. I got used to, when I first started out, don't hold me to this because it might not be 100% true, but I'm going to say probably 90% of A Little Bit Special is sort of profanity free yeah because i really wanted you know i wanted these songs to reach a wide audience yeah in my naivete i thought you know maybe i can get these songs on some weird mtv show or on comedy central or on the radio or yeah. something and I, I wanted people to hear them and i didn't want to have to bleep them or censor myself. So I wrote them intentionally that way. Yeah. And then after that record, I realized, okay, that's never going to happen. <laughs> They're never going to let me sing these horrible things yeah. know, on any sort of real network television or popular radio thing. So let me just do what I want to do. But I would still have to play them on, you know, morning radio shows when I'm in town promoting for a show that night or whatever, yeah. or you know, the odd TV appearance here or there. I would have to learn how to censor some of this profanity. And so I would say the fucks sort of, as you said, you know, you imply the fuck yeah. without actually saying it. And I got away with that for years and years and years. <laughs> and I, it, I pretty much was saying the word, but I was saying it not enough so that people would get in trouble or they would have to censor me for it. So maybe that's why I did it. I don't, huh, I don't remember funny. having done it on records or anything, but it's possible. I was just so used to doing it that way that that's what I did. Yeah. It's around here and there. Yeah. My first introduction to you was the live at the El Rey DVD. Uh -huh. I just immediately went out and bought all three albums. And I wonder, was that like a big gateway for a lot of other fans that did that? Um, oh yeah. That like, was huge. Yeah. It sold a lot of what the kids 
won't know DVDs. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a medium that we used to use to put our specials on and people would buy them and take them home. And hey, I put out a live DVD this year. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was huge for me. I mean, that was the first time I could sort of just do my own show and not have to worry about, like I had done a few specials for Comedy Central or whatever, which is great and got me huge publicity. And, yeah. you know, that was back in the day when people watched that stuff and um, there was no YouTube and no... There's no alternative. You know, you want a comedy, yeah. you turned on the television or you listen to a record or a CD or whatever. But, you know, I had to adhere to those rules. And this is uh, the first time I could just sort of do my show as it was when you came to see my show, which was a whole different animal. And, um, yeah, that blew up, man. It, it was huge. And it, I remember walking through Union Square in New York and seeing a like a giant cardboard cutout of it on the, you know, in the window of like the Virgin Megastore or whatever. Wow. I was like, what the fuck? I tried to do mainstream sort of stuff or safe for the mainstream kind of stuff and I, I and nothing happens. And then when I say fuck it, you know, all of a sudden I'm <laughs> in the Virgin Megastore. Yeah. So <laughs> I guess that's what happens though. When you try, it doesn't work. When you say fuck it, that's when it all happens. For you. But yeah, that was huge. I got a lot of eyeballs on me from that special. And that has kind of a good mixture of the first few records. I think the Craig machine really is my personal favorite from that era. You know, you're sort of, you're adding some additional accompaniment to the live show. You know, we get some bass and piano and, you know, some great harmonies. You had, you know, Mark Tyke, RIP and and Rod Cohn. Um, It really took everything kind of to a next level, but I also felt like the writing was razor sharp on that record. Did you feel something special about that third record? I felt like I had a really good collection of songs on that record. You know, I haven't listened to it in years and years, but I remember it fondly, and I think I probably would enjoy it if I listened to it, or at least I would hate it less than I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I think I was starting to take the songwriting more seriously at that point as well. I realized that this was probably going to be, if not a career, then at least a way for me to make a living for a while. Yeah. And so I took, I started to take it more seriously and not just sort of put everything that came into my head into the show. So yeah, I, I do. I like, I like a lot of the songs on that record. Yeah. I think there's nothing but heavy hitters on that one. I mean, even some of the deeper cuts like albino or tiny little mustache, like the, the middle back half of that record is, is great. Um, I forgot about that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I forgot I was going to, when I answered the phone, I was going to say something about like, oh, hi, Steven Lynchberg Stein. And I forgot. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that one's in the show. That one is currently, I mean, you can imagine that with the state of yeah. events in the last few years, I had to resurrect the old, uh, I think my girlfriend's a Nazi song because it had, I don't know. I just felt like it had a new relevance. Well, yeah. Know? At the time it was like, this is the most ridiculous song I've ever heard. And, and I, when I was listening back to everything just to prep for this, so I was like, damn, that's almost too real now. <laughs> right. Wait, where where do you live? You live in Oregon? Yeah. Okay, so I was reading a book. I don't remember the name of the book, but it was all about like this sort of underground, insidious neo-Nazi movement that was coming out of the Pacific Northwest, specifically yeah. like the Portland and you know that area of Oregon. And that's what gave me the idea for that song. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I thought that, okay, I can't just sing a song about neo-Nazis, because what's funny about that? I mean, yeah. You know what I mean? It's a, they're, you know, what the fuck? This song's called um, American History X. Enjoy. 
Yeah, exactly. That's not that funny. But if it's if it's a guy who's too stupid to realize through the you know, despite the obvious warning signs that his <laughs> yeah. girlfriend might be a Nazi, maybe that'll be funny. It's a red flag song. It's a red flag song. Yeah. yeah. And now when I play it in the show, I mean, it really does take on a whole new meaning just because of the news cycle of the last you know five or six years or whatever. Yeah. So that one's enjoying a little resurgence. I wanted to ask about your instrument of choice from that era. I had a J45 around the same time and uh, was just absolutely in love with it. Was there anything that drew you to Gibson guitars? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is that I lived and still do in Kalamazoo, where where Gibson originated from. Yeah. Yeah. And so they were always around. Everybody had a Gibson guitar, and I just loved the sound of them. J45 was a really nice touring guitar. It was super light. It sounded good. I tried some other ones that I didn't like as much. Matter of fact, I did a tour of um, Europe once where I decided not even to take a guitar. I just put in the rider, just have a guitar there. Just a six string. Oh no. Guitar. (laughs) And man, the range of guitars that you can find (laughs) when you just send somebody out to get you a guitar is kind of hilarious. I mean, it ranged from like shit I have never heard of that just wouldn't stay in tune to like the most beautiful, like $20,000 guitars or whatever. Wow. Yeah, I gave up on that notion very quickly. Decided, yeah. You know what, just, just stick with your old faithful. And then I found a really, couple really nice ones that I like touring with. And I think Gibson like gave me one of those at one point. Awesome. Yeah, it just, it's got this really nice kind of harmonic mid-range that, that I think works well with your voice and your register, you know? Yeah, it really did. And it worked well as just the lone instrument in a song. Sometimes... Yeah. Sometimes you hear a guitar and it sounds such that you want to hear a little something else, like a bass or a piano or something. But I found that that guitar really just works well by itself. Yeah. You know, in that sort of singer-songwriter style. Now, we talked about seeing a, a big ad for your record, or for your DVD, rather. My wife and I visited New York for the first time in 2006 and saw you uh-huh. saw you on billboards for Broadway. <laughs> Um, yeah, that was doing that was insane. The wedding singer, which actually got you, I believe, a, a Tony nomination. Is that right? It did. That's yep. that's pretty amazing. I remember just being like, "Holy shit!" Like, cause, I mean, I'd probably only known your work for a year or something, and it's like, "Wow, he's blowing up." I wonder, was that a dream come true for you to work Broadway? Yeah, it was like the fourteen-year-old me's dream come true. Yeah. At, you know what I mean? That's what I wanted to do with my life when I was a kid. And I did plays all throughout my junior high school and high school and college. I studied theater in, in um, college and, and moved to New York, hoping that I could somehow make a career of that. And then, and then I sort of got detoured by this whole comedy thing. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, when I tried, nothing happened. Yeah. When I said, fuck it, I'm going to do something else, it just sort of landed in my lap, which was a really strange thing. But yeah, I jumped at that chance, man. I, I it, And it was great. And I had a great time. And I met like the coolest of people who I'm still friends with today. Wow. And, and in fact, uh, one of them I took on tour with me and he was, you know, one of my dudes for years because he also wrote songs and could sing his ass off, and it was you know fun to add him to the mix. Yeah. And then when it, when it was time for it to be over, it was sort of a relief. It was like, I, this was fun. I'm glad I did it. I had a blast. Met these cool people. But 
I need to get back to doing my stuff. Even though I say that all I really want to do is, is write. I, I was, <laughs> I was sort of itching to get back on the road and, and like, you know, not be constrained by having to say the same thing every night. Over yeah. And over again. Was it harder on your voice to do Broadway or to tour the way that you do now? I think it's harder now because I tour in sort of infrequently. And so it takes a while for my voice to oh, yeah. get back into shape. And at that point, you know, when you're doing eight shows a week, you, you learn how to sing without fucking your voice up. <laughs> yeah. Or, or you better learn how to sing without fucking your voice <laughs> up or else you're going to miss a lot of shows and they don't like that. So, yeah, I think I was probably at my best vocally during the run of that show. And then I stop and you take like a year off just to write and I didn't sing a lick for a year. <laughs> and then, you know, you, all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, I have to do a show in a week and I don't remember how to sing. Yeah. And so the first few shows are kind of like you getting towards the end and I'm all raggedy and Craig Christ. I'm like, here, you guys sing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, just, yeah, yeah. I can't do it tonight. Now I've been on the road for a couple of months now and I feel like I'm in I'm in pretty good shape now. I can get through a couple hours of straight singing and talking nice. without going hoarse. Now, when you're writing Three Balloons after that, was it like, oh, man, I'm really hungry to do this, kind of like you alluded to? Or was it a little bit of like a, you know, maybe there was a few more on the cutting room floor, kind of like trying to make sure yes. it was a, a worthy follow-up? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a cobbled together, you know, some old stuff that I you know, hadn't really used before and then trying to remember how to write the way that I had been. Yeah. And I got enough together to make a record, but it's, for me, it's my least favorite of all of them. Really? And not because of the record itself. I had a good time recording that one, but the material was not the greatest for me with a couple of exceptions. It's just one I don't revisit very often. Well, then let's talk about the exceptions because uh, one of my favorites is Fish and Hole, the asshole song. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's one of the exceptions. <laughs> that's one that I, I continued to do throughout the years. Good, good. Yeah, I even, really even like that I ha- one. I hate the recording of that song. Really? I, I, yeah, I don't think I did it very well because that was one that I added later after we had recorded in the studio and I, I just sort of had this thought and wrote the song real quick and then rushed back to New York and Dean, the guy who produced the record for me and engineered it, he found some place and we just popped in. And in fact, I think it was like David Sanborn's house or something, some, something weird like that. Huh. Anyway, we popped in and I just grabbed a guitar and did it. And I was like, yeah, that's great. That's fine. Let's just leave it. And then, then I realized, you know, all the mistakes I made and what I should have done. And these are things that nobody gives a shit about. I realize that, but no, I, um, I know how it is, man. You, you put know, out a record and six months later, you're like, fuck, I should have spent more time on that one. You know, I should have done this differently. Yeah, exactly. And, and through the process of that's one of those that I had never played for a human being until I went into the studio to do it. And yeah. then over the course of touring with, with the song, you realize, you know, the changes that would make the song better and then you incorporate those and you take this part out and you chop this part in half and and by the time you've been doing it for six months, it's a much better song. And that's the one I wish I could go back and re-record. Yeah. But, I, but the song itself, I do like that one. That one and uh, Crazy Peanuts are like the two <laughs> on the record that I still perform once in a while. Now there's a dedication to the song Fish and Hole to Louis C.K. or Louis C.K. And I wonder... <laughs> is this a yes. reference? Is this a Dennis Leary reference going back to the asshole thing or is this separate? 
No, this is, um, I wrote that song, recorded it, and then one day my wife was like, you know, Louis C.K. has a whole bit about his kid being an asshole or something. Oh, okay, okay. And I was like, what? Really? And he, she played me the bit, and I was like, oh, fuck. God right, damn well, it. Let me just uh, <laughs> thank him in the liner notes, and maybe he won't think I ripped him off or something. Because yeah. I had never heard that bit. I just thought it was funny to call it child and asshole. So... That's the reason I did that. Okay. I wondered, like, how far that went back, because there was the whole thing about, you know, Dennis Leary's asshole song coming from a Louis C.K. bit, and, and so I was just like, does it tie into that? It's the uh, same It's the same word, kind of? Like, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Um, now, I mentioned Carlin earlier. Another thing that he had said is that he felt it a comedian's job to find where the line is drawn, cross it deliberately, and then make the audience glad that he did. Um, uh-huh. I mentioned Dear Diary as a, just a, a really, I mean, they're, they're pretty dark, but they're really, really funny. And I wonder, do you ever have like a love hate thing with crowds? Like, I remember you once introduced something saying like, you're either going to love this song or kick my ass after the show. Like, do you, do you ever read the room and, and change your set or is it just kind of like no. fucking t- take it? Or leave no, it. It's a. It's take it or leave it. Yeah. And it, really, my only rule, or at least my only, my only rule used to be: if it's funny to me, then I'm, you know, I, I will assume then that it's probably funny to other people. Yeah. And and sometimes that's true, and sometimes it's not true. And my goal is was never and is not and never will be to elicit some sort of over the top reaction from an audience. Mm-hmm. The only response i'm interested in is laughter like yeah literally the only response i don't want you to applaud what i say <laughs> i don't want you to go oh yeah or get mad I just, I just want you to laugh and if i do my job right you will and so i guess for me that line was was never about how far can i take this it was about even though i'm dancing on this line or maybe even crossing this line is yeah. it still funny and is it funny to me what does this make me laugh and if the answer was yes, then I would just go for it. Nice. I appreciate that. I regret some of the things that I obviously have written about. Some <laughs> things do not age well. Some things I realize that I was, you know, super ignorant about things when I wrote it. For sure. And if I could go back, I would never have written some of those things. But, you know, you live and you learn. Yeah, I think we all feel like that, especially if you're trying to, um, you know, push boundaries and get laughs like that. I'm sure that anyone who's trying to do that would have their share of cancelable material these days <laughs> oh for sure you know? man that should have been cancelled like a thousand times over <laughs> <laughs> now we yeah. talked about how Lion was a really big step up and I wanted to acknowledge also the production and, you know it's a very musically rich album as well and it's kind of like I said with Craig it's like you can feel the songwriting really stepping up but then the humor is that much more biting too yeah I think my favorite line on that one was the the outtake that you give like an alternate reading on the live record with the on no meat, <laughs> you know, where you said uh, for one bite of brisket brought from down south, I'd let Magic Johnson bleed in my mouth. And <laughs> see, that's so awful, and it still to me is funny. I've rewound that. I mean, that's like the funniest fucking thing I've ever heard. Um, I mean, it, it's an outtake and it's not officially part of the song. Yeah. But look, let's face it. When I do live shows, I still do that at the end. Oh yeah. Go, yeah. You know what I mean? It's just, it's too good not to. I mean, it's awful. It's fucking awful. 
but it's too good not to not to share. <laughs> was there um, any kind of longing to get back to developing these songs in the studio with this record? Because this is the first time we really got one of each, a studio and a live album. Yeah, I just I just really wanted to like the music I was making. And with past records, it was sort of hit or miss, or it wasn't the point, or if I wrote something that was funny and it happened to be something that I musically enjoyed, that was a bonus. And this time I was like, fuck that. I'm going to actually make a record of music that I would listen to yeah. if it weren't funny. And I refused to give in to myself when it was you know, late and I was tired and I didn't want to write anymore and it was good enough. And I would resist the urge to sort of give in to that temptation and just say, ah, you know what, this is funny. I'll just use this. I was like, no, I'm going to write all this music. I'm going to make songs first and then I'm going to figure out how to make these songs funny. Yeah. Rather than come yeah. up with a premise and then work a song around it. I can and really I, hear that, that. That to me, that's what makes that record better than most of the other stuff that I've done. Is that I really concentrated on making a, a, a record of songs that I liked, and so yeah. I can still listen to that one. And it's almost which is rare for me. It's almost like Lullaby that we talked about. In that, it's really just a beautiful song by itself and then if you're paying attention you're like whoa what the fuck you know and like let me inside <laughs> is what comes to mind when we're talking about that because let me inside is probably my favorite song from this and it's a oh, genius thanks. kind of turn of phrase because you're not like you said it's like we're changing the approach here i'm not gonna just go hit you with the sledgehammer it's kind of a real gradual Almost yeah. slow burn of a song. Exactly. It's subtler, and it's probably the first one of the songs on that record that was that template that I told you about earlier that I laid out for myself where, all right, let's just vamp on this, this chord structure. Yeah. You know, because when you do like a verse-chorus, verse-chorus thing, it's almost like it's set up to be set up punchline, set up punchline. Yeah. And when you take that away, you really got to figure out how am I going to make this sort of you know, three minute vamping on this one progression. How do you make that funny? And it forces your brain to think in a different way. And it forced my brain to, at least to think in a different way. And, and when I figured that one out, I was super pumped about it. And it's a great payoff because again, it's not a quick twist. It's not a big shock. And yet it's right. no less funny than any of those other things that I quoted. You know, I mean, Thank you. that that's the real success of a song like that. I also wanted to ask about some of the collaborations on these last couple records. I uh -huh. really, really love your voice with Courtney J. Uh, she yeah. she penned one of my favorite songs of, of last year. She had a, a song on Election Day uh, where she sang, You're Fired, to Donald Trump. And I, <laughs> yes, of course. I love that song, <laughs> and uh, she was just so, so good. I wonder um, how did you connect with her? Well, when I decided to record Lion my thought process was this. I'm going to pick some of my favorite records. I'm going to figure out who produced them. And I'm going to ask them if they're interested in producing this weird comedy record. Nice. music. And so I reached out to a few people and the one I connected with the most was Doug Lancio, who was uh, Patty Griffin's guitar player and produced a couple of her records and ones that I, you know, wore out listening to. Yeah. And so I, on the long shot that he might be interested, I sent him a bunch of demos and he called me back and he's like, dude, these are fucking hilarious. Get down to Nashville. We'll knock this out in a couple of weeks. 
Nice. And yeah, and I said, do you know somebody who can sing some harmonies? And I have this idea for a duet between a man and a woman about a, an argument that they have about, you know, what they were listening to the night the first. Oh, yeah. Is, is that the night I laid you down? And he said, oh, yeah, I got the perfect person. And so I went down to Nashville to record the record. He found all the musicians for me. And these were like fucking top notch musicians, like really good yeah. players. And he found Courtney for me as well. And, and we hit it off. And I thought she sounded so fucking great. She had the perfect quality of what I was looking for, which was sing it like you mean it. Don't sing it like you're telling a joke. Yeah. Because far too often people would sort of go the other direction. And I wanted somebody who you almost don't have to listen, pay attention to what you're singing about. Just sing it like you would sing a song, you know, a normal song. Yeah. And she had that immediately. I didn't have to, you know, it was just instinctual for her. And so it went so well that she and Rod and Charlie, who was an old friend of mine who played a lot on that record, we went out as sort of a little band for that Lion Tour. And, and man, that was super fun because not, not only could I play those songs and give them sort of the, what, what they were due, I thought, musically, but, you know, you have three other people on stage that you can talk to and fuck around with. And it just makes for a whole different kind of show than when you're just sitting on a stool by yourself talking to an audience. So. Yeah, yeah. And I actually <laughs> found some of that live from Kalamazoo on YouTube and was looking everywhere like, where is this DVD? Where can I buy this? I'm like, oh, there isn't one. Okay, never mind. Because, <laughs> yeah, that no, was there, great. There is a DVD of it. Really? It's just... Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't, it should be in normal DVD places. It's called Hello Kalamazoo. Yeah. And it's I, maybe, it's maybe the last, uh, you know, sort of live show that I'll ever put out on an actual physical medium. Yeah. Because, you know, it's just like, who has, I don't even own a DVD player anymore. Why <laughs> am I making DVDs? So we'll, we'll figure out something else for the next one. Well, if you happen to exist. think of... It is out there. I'll send you one. Yeah, dude. If you happen to think of where I can pick it up, let me know. I'll, I'll gladly buy one. All right. Cool. So, My Old Heart, the most recent record, opens with yep. the title track. And th this is another one of those songs that's so sweet, it could almost be like on a Willie Nelson record or something. And, <laughs> and then I sometimes wonder... I mean, we talked a little bit about this where... A lot of times it sounds like melodies come first. Do you ever just write straightforward songs and then fuck them up later? <laughs> yeah, that one actually was going to be. A, I was, I was, you know, just sort of messing around with the idea of not even putting out, just recording a, an album of non-comedy songs. Yeah, that was one of them. You know, I just couldn't resist the urge to start <laughs> fucking it up about halfway through, and then I was like, okay, well. I guess I got a song for the next comedy record. Yeah, once Ray Ray uh, came in, it was all over. <laughs> yeah, once Ray Ray got involved, that motherfucker. Are, are there any other styles that you have wanted to try or other influences? Because, like, I mean, Denial is a good example here. That's kind of a punk song. I mean, a lot of these records, as you go on, you're digging in a little deeper or, or enriching the music with yeah. more layers. I mean... What else haven't well, you done that you'd like to? I'm never in search of a particular style of music. It's just like when I took that song into the studio and the dudes that I was playing with, we started playing it. That's just sort of what it turned into. Yeah. And as I mentioned before, sometimes you just don't know what a song is. Like I know the words to the song and I know the melody and I know the chords, but I don't know what this song is exactly. Yeah. And that one, as it turns out, was what it turned into when we were practicing it. And that happens with a lot of those songs, which is another reason why I love to record 
songs in the studio as opposed to live is because you can really just experiment and have fun and try different things and see what works and what maybe makes the song even funnier somehow. You yeah. Know, if we play it this way or if we don't play it this way, or if we take this part out, if we add this beautiful cello line, somehow that <laughs> makes that line right before it funnier somehow. I don't know how that works. Yeah. It just does. And so, yeah, I'm never looking to do a particular style of music per se. Sometimes those things just kind of present themselves as you're, as you're recording it or as you're just fucking around playing it live with some people, you know? Well, and that's something I wonder too. I mean, how often do you test your material on stage first? Cause like, like a song like dead sexy isn't on the studio disc. Was that a late addition? Cause it absolutely killed on the live disc. What was the origin of dead sexy? I think that one sort of followed the tradition of the history song on three balloons, the write it down motherfucker where <laughs> I just, I decided there yeah. wasn't quite enough there to do it as a song. Yeah. There didn't seem to be enough meat on the bones for it to be a self-contained song, but live as sort of an interstitial thing. Like, you know, we were talking about those little tiny songs and these aren't tiny. Dead sexy is not a, you know, two lines, sure. but it has that same sort of feel. Like this is one you just kind of play in between things and it worked really well. And so I decided yeah, I didn't really need to record it, record it, but it could, it could really work well in the live setting. Yeah. There was something you did with summer song that incorporates kind of a, a more stand-up technique where you're using callbacks to other songs. <laughs> yeah. Is, was that a, a fun one to play live? Like, do you bust that out in the show? after you played those earlier songs that it's tying into? Yes. In fact, we still do it live and we do it live without having done my old heart. Oh, <laughs> so this, this reference to Ray Ray is just completely lost on the audience. And yet <laughs> it still gets a laugh somehow. I don't know. I guess they just, they get the concept of being pissed about your wife and some dude named Ray Ray. Yeah. Maybe the word Ray Ray is just funny. I don't know. But yeah, that was super fun to like, as we recorded it, just sort of add callbacks to things and references to things. I think we mentioned Benedict Cumberbatch like three times on that record yes. somehow, <laughs> which is bizarre, but super fun. Omaha is one of my very favorites. I don't really have a question about that, um, so I'll leave, I'll leave it at that, but I, I, it's just a genius premise. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I imagine that you must have gotten shit for Queer Tattoo. And yet you doubled down and made a sequel on this record. <laughs> Oddly enough, no. I, really? And it may be because I talk, I, there's a whole bit in the, in the live show, and it's on the Hello Kalamazoo DVD, where yeah. I talk about sort of reclaiming the word queer <laughs> for straight white males. <laughs> yeah. As a, you know, it's obviously I'm saying it ironically, but I think it takes some of the sting away from the fact that I'm using the word. Yeah. Which I realize is, you know, it's walking the line. If I'm walking the line in these last few records, it's definitely with that song, just because of that word in particular is sort of touch and go. But I think the audience sort of gets what I'm doing with it. Yeah. I, just, I hope they do. And I haven't had any pushback about it. Well, there have been anyway. a couple other songs where the audience can contextualize a little bit where you're coming from, you know, like yeah. they're bought in enough. But I, yeah, I always wondered about that one, especially when I heard the first one was just like, Oh my God, this is like a guilty laugh, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just talk about in the show, how I'm using it in the old time, he senses the word, which has been lost. Yeah. You know what I mean? I sort of, I sort of 
facetiously mourn the loss of the great word queer in its original context. I think people realize what the intention is. There's a nuance to it that's not like, I'm just going to say that's a fucking gay tattoo. Like, yeah. if it were a gay tattoo, that'd be a whole other thing, I think. Well, let me ask but, you this, because on the live record, you set it up with Denzel. Like, there's kind of a long vamp in there where you talk about gender roles and sexuality being fluid and all this shit, right? So you, you've established this, and then you go with queer tattoo on the record. And I was like, that is smart. Because they're now they're bought in, you know. Right. You know, I tried to set it up beforehand where it makes more sense afterwards. Yeah. Know, what I what the intention is, and I, you know, I don't know. Maybe it does make some people uncomfortable or angry or sad. I hope not. I hope they get what I'm trying to do. Yeah. But you know, so far I haven't had people get angry with me about it. Well, it's one where just the fucking melody pop you and Courtney that pops into my fucking head sometimes just gets stuck okay. in there it's um, so annoying isn't it I, I sometimes I wake up with that melody <laughs> in my head. I, I can I only imagine myself in the years now last thing on this record recently was my stepdad's birthday and we will always play the Beatles happy birthday song and I was like hey you know what I got a new one I wanted to play for you <laughs> and uh and my whole family was dying laughing from this and um I wonder, did you ever consider like that now this song, it's like making a holiday record or something like this is going to be part of family's traditions forever now. <laughs> Yours might be the only family that would have this <laughs> No, there's no I, way. I grew up like yeah. my stepdad, he would get the Beatles one. I would get the one from the punk band, the Vandals, you know, like, you know, fuck you. It's my birthday, you know, and like right. now we got yours. <laughs> No, as I said before, I realized back in the year 2000, after a little bit special came out, that I was probably going to reach a niche audience. Yeah. I was never going to be the guy who, who's part of the family traditions, holidays or otherwise. Well, you are now. Very, very many people. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. I'm down with that. I'm down with you, yours being like one in, you know, 20 families in the country who <laughs> yeah. are going to play that song on people's birthdays. That's cool with me, man. Awesome. Well, uh, you are out currently on the Time Machine Tour. Was this something that you planned in uh, 2020 and got pushed back? Yep, we had a whole tour planned. We had done a, a few shows. I think my last one was in Las Vegas on like March 1st or February 28th. Or, it was right around there. And then I got home and realized that this thing that I thought was just going to be about some weird cruise ship disease yeah. was actually going to fuck everything up. And uh, everybody knows the rest of the story. Yeah. Well, I imagine it feels great being out there again. Oh, yeah. It's great to, you know, work again, which is always nice. And then to test out this material that I've had just sort of getting dusty for the last year and a half that I was excited about and I thought was really good. And um, it was great to test that out and, and make necessary changes here and there and, yeah. and figure that stuff out. Well, yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, did you use any of that time to write new material, or are you mostly still focused on promoting My Old Heart? No, I had already had like two-thirds or three-quarters of a new record written. Wow. And it was the fastest I'd ever written anything in my life, which is bizarre, because I take so long between records, or at least I have recently. Yeah. And so I was really pumped about it, like, oh my God, people aren't going to believe this. I like finished this record comes out, and like a year later, I'm going to have enough 
material for a whole new record. And then bam, COVID fucked all that up. So no, I didn't write anything during COVID. I just, the world wasn't funny to me. You know what I mean? Everything was too like up in the air and everything you thought about was sort of pandemic related. And I didn't want to write a a record that was about a fucking pandemic that everybody's going to be sick of in a couple of years. So I just sort of waited. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to it, man. I, I really appreciate you coming on. This was uh, a, a real treat. You've been a very generous guest. Yeah, yeah I, man, my pleasure. Hope you Thank have a great show questions. in Florida. Thank you for not asking me uh, where I get my ideas from. I appreciate <laughs> that. It's always great when people don't ask you. Yeah, I, I have no interest in going through the the regular questions and talking about the bowling song and shit like that. I don't. I, I don't. Yes, I, I appreciate you asking me real and interesting questions. So. Cool, man. My pleasure. All right, that is our show. Huge thank you to Stephen Lynch for coming on and to his agent, Kristen, for setting everything up behind the scenes. I I really appreciate it. This is honestly one of my favorite conversations in recent memory. And it's great when you've never met somebody before, but you just bond as a fellow songwriter or a fellow musician. And that's exactly what this was. We captured some magic. I hope you like it. I'm going to leave you with the song we talked about. This is Stephen Lynch, Let Me Inside. Will you show me your heart? Will you open it wide? Expose the runners. Will you let me inside? Can you tear down the wall? For the mortar has dried. Will you show me your heart? Will you let me inside? There's not to infer and nothing applied. I literally mean, will you let me inside? I'm at your front door, it's not open, I tried It's cold as balls out here, let me inside You know when it's dark, I get terrified Come on seriously, will you let me inside? Think I just saw a possum all beady-eyed Those things fucking scare me Please let me inside Are you angry with me? Are you preoccupied? Are you taking a shit And can't let me inside? I can smell from the kitchen The food that you fried I've had half of a power bar, let me inside How can this situation be rectified? Hey, here's an idea, fucking let me inside Tried to climb through your window, but I was too wide You should get bigger windows Or let me inside 
Are you with a new guy that you're trying to hide? Girl, I'm down for a threesome. Just let me inside. Okay, that's the last straw. I'm a man, I've got pride, and my toesies are freezing. Please let me inside. Show me your heart. Will you open it wide? Expose the raw nerves. Will you let me inside? Can you tear down the wall? For the mortar has dried. Till then, I'll be sitting here waiting out. Blueprint, illogic, superstition, gift of gab. My name is Sammy Warmhands, and these are just a few of the iconic voices featured on my double album, Figures of Speech, available now at Take92.com and StrangeFamous.com. Do you miss live music and going on tour? Check out my new book, How to Ruin Your Life, The Daily Grind of a DIY Tour. The book chronicles nearly a decade of underground tours with artists like DJ Abilities and Christoph Crane. With a foreword by Carnage the Executioner, this book is a must-have for rap fans who want to peek behind the scenes. The book is available now at Take92.com and StrangeFamous.com. For even more behind-the-scenes content, subscribe to the Take92 podcast for interviews with artists from Sage Francis to Jello Biafra. This is Sammy Warmhands from Crush Kill Recordings and Take92 Music.